1: I am very excited. We're talking to Krista Tippett. Uh, I probably don't have to tell WNPR listeners who that is. She's a journalist and host of On Being. She's the author most recently of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Also the author of Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit. Uh, She's won all kinds of awards. I'll be here all day if I uh, start uh, identifying her that way. So we want (laughs) to instead plunge into the book. But Krista Tippett, first of all, welcome to this show.
2: I am glad to be with you.
1: And before we plunge into the book itself, which I promise you we will do at great length, um, can we talk a little bit about you? First of all, how comfortable are you talking about you? Often people who interview for a living don't necessarily like talking about themselves.
2: Right. Well, um, I, I had to completely shift gears in order to write the book. Um, Talking about the book now that it's written is not so hard, but um we're talking about those ideas but as as you understand, which is you know the 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 intelligence behind the question is that um when i'm interviewing people i 'm not talking about myself even if i 'm present, so um that's why writing it was so hard because well also because I realized I had to put myself into. The ideas, you know, that's what I try to do in my interviews, and I know what makes it listenable is when you draw people out—not not just about what they think, but who they are, mm-hmm. uh, right—and not just the ideas, but the lives we lead. And But it was very daunting and not that comfortable to put myself through those paces as well. All right.
1: Well, I will try to make you as uncomfortable as possible <laughs> okay. as we go along here.
2: Um, right.
1: I, w- I want to also just begin with what your mission has been. Uh, my experience with public radio, uh, and I've only been here since 2009, is that the institution and its audience – can be a little uncomfortable with topics like Mm. faith and spirit and soul. There's an unusually high percentage of people who think of themselves as rationalists and think of faith or soul as superstitions. Did you feel, especially in the early years as you established yourself doing this, did you feel kind of like an odd duck?
2: i I absolutely felt like an odd duck, and i it was actually a big struggle, and uh, it was something I had to fight for for years. There was a lot of skepticism in the in newsrooms hmm. um, about whether this could be something uh, a subject that you could talk about on public radio with public radio values of intelligence and balance and something that wouldn't be inflammatory or, uh, you know, make people angry, uh, make, make people feel excluded, proselytizing. I mean, I have to say I did understand that skepticism because we, we don't have a lot of great models um, in public life in general or even in journalism about, you know, coming at this subject in a way that, let's say, opens imaginations up rather than shutting them down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a struggle.
1: Yeah, no, you got you and you got Bill Moyers, and it starts mm. to thin out a little bit after that. So yeah. um, I did a job a little bit like yours about 35 years ago, but it was at a newspaper. And And after a while, I felt like I was circling around the buffet table of sp- faith, spirit, religion, commitment kind of endlessly. And I felt more yeah. disoriented than nourished by that process. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, and I, I guess I'm, I'm asking you that question. You've been a conduit, you know, for— mm for 40, 50 different points of view per year. Um, and, and maybe does that make it hard for you to stabilize your own sense of spirituality?
2: Um, it's an interesting way you're stating the question. I mean, I, you know, sometimes people assume that I must be the most enlightened person on the planet. Because I have all these conversations and I get to say, you know, there's a wise person I'm going to. I'm going to engage and you know I'm going to go deeply in conversation with them and immerse myself in their work. Um, the the truth is I'm very fortunate to do the work I do, but I also like everyone else just have a real messy life um, outside the studio, and I imperfectly apply all the enlightened teachings that I receive, <laughs> um, just like everyone else. I I mean I I am I am nourished by the conversations and and. Um, I suppose you know what's happened with this project is that we've it's we've I feel like we've been listening to the culture in these years as much as we've been listening to our guests and our listeners and this part of life uh, which you know th- that we call religious or spiritual um, I don't know moral imagination is a phrase I like that you know this is a rapidly evolving part of American culture and I think hu- you know human life in the 21st century and i think by 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 following that and taking uh, taking this on as an adventure um it's you know it's been endlessly surprising and and really refreshing so I guess that, and I, and I, and I feel that, and I feel that also in how, I, how, how I continue to imperfectly internalize <laughs> <laughs> what I learned into my life.
1: Well, we'll come back to the whole question of you as the ultimate oh. bodhisattva uh, <laughs> later on in this conversation. But you know what you do see in the book. The book, by the way, "Becoming Wise: An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living." Uh, you do say, Krista Tippett, in the book that one question you don't ask in interviews is something along the lines of, "And I may be uh, misparaphrasing it." What's the current state of your spiritual life, or what's right. what's your relationship with God? Why don't you? Why not ask that question?
2: Um, because that that is a question that. Uh, Words. Well, it's 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 as intimate as any other question I could ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you religious? What do you believe? What's your how's your spiritual life right now? Um, it's also something that uh, that ultimately is always going to defy words. So I, I, you know, one of the things I have pursued, one of the convictions I've pursued in these years, is that we must find ways to talk about this important part of ourselves in public. But but we but the but the language we use and the approach we have to that has to be so intelligent, intelligent and, and uh, sensitive to to how sensitive the material is. And uh, so to ask that kind of straight on linear question, I think would render almost all of us, including me, kind of uh, you know not very articulate, inarticulate, and uh, and uh, you know you would you would freeze up if someone asked you that question.
1: It is true. I was asked a version of that question within the last three or four days, and I did freeze up. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, by my pastor, actually. Anyway, um, <laughs> you. <laughs> who I suppose has a right to ask that question but um anyway do you I, I want to come back to this question about you as a bodhisattva because I, I do think maybe your listeners or even somebody picking up this book is thinking that maybe you do have some kind of Promethean secret that you've talked to everybody you know that you like you're like the Nate silver of religion you know, you've, you know you looked at all of the numbers here you can average them all out and you see somehow or other you know you have a distill a distillation maybe. Be uh, at the end of that process. So, uh, based on what you just said uh, earlier in this conversation, that's not how you feel. It, it, it's
2: not. It's. It's. I don't. It's not how I feel as a human being. But, but uh, you know, I I, I I wrote the book because I have learned some things, right? And I and I want to share what I've learned. But the the creative tension in the book, or. Or the creative premise of the book um, that I got clearer and clearer on in as I was pulling together, you know, because the question kind of the – the orienting question for the book was, well, you know, what have I learned? What are the recurring qualities and the recurring themes in Lives of Wisdom? and And, and part of that that has been so important to me even personally is to really demystify, you know – saintliness or or mm-hmm. even wisdom that the, that this is not something that's up on a pedestal that even the most saintly wise people we could think of in history in fact were three-dimensional uh, creatures just like us and but that but that what i've learned from from these graceful lives is um that we that we have precisely the raw materials that we've been given in our in our stories and in our everyday um to, 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 to aspire to be, to, to, to be our best selves as a, as a practice um, and to be kind of spiritually evolving. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I practice that too.
1: Um, reading the book, I, I got the feeling that probably there are a lot of occasions, and I'm going to invite you maybe to describe or mention one of them, where you walk away from the interview in this pretty ecstatic state thinking, oh, that was it. You know, I just got handed the key and and that gradually you you, instead of that being the case, you kind of fit it into the mosaic uh, of everything that you've heard and learned and incorporated into your your own way of living. But do you want to mention one time where at least in in the immediate afterglow you thought, oh, no, that's it. That's the whole thing. He he or she (laughs) just told me everything I need to know about the mystery of life.
2: Uh, Well, you're right that I often have at least one. Real gift, you know, coming out of an interview. Um, I would say, uh, you know, recently I interviewed this physicist named Frank Wilczek, and he's a Nobel physicist. And he's—I I, I interview many scientists. I mean, this is one of the kind of paths I walk down. Right. There are more. There, work there
1: that, are more poets and scientists in this book than there are theologians. And, that's it.
2: That's it. Uh, poets and scientists. And I. And that's something if you'd told me 12 years ago that I'd be interviewing a lot of physicists, I would have been very surprised and mm-hmm. possibly about the poets as well. Um, and what's interesting about him is that he – so I think that, that f- people on scientific frontiers, you know, physics, neuroscience, um, they may or may not be religious themselves. They may or may not be at all interested in theological questions. But, you know, in these spheres – we are actually – people are actually posing questions that are – that were the kinds of things that, that philosophers and theologians did before and, and and making discoveries and having insights that in fact are spiritually, theologically evocative. But what's interesting about Frank Wilczek is that he's actually willing to go there. <laughs> he's interesting to say, yeah, I learned this. And he's not religious, but I learned this in physics and this has relevance to life. So one of the things he told me that kind of fits your your bill that I haven't been able to stop thinking about is – and he said he said he talked about what deep truth, you know, mm-hmm. and this is as a physicist. And he said one of the uh, one of, and one example of this is the great uh, the great uh, debate that Einstein had that he kind of helped solve, you know, is light a particle or a wave? And the answer is that it's both. Mm-hmm. But it depends on what question you're asking. Uh, and you can't actually come up with both answers at the same time. And he said that the definition of a deep truth is that it's a deep truth, right? Is that its opposite is also true. Right. Although you can't entertain those two truths at the same time. And and, and what I, I wanna so I've I've thought about that so much and I also just will share that I spoke about that at a at a book event we had here in Minneapolis. The mayor of Minneapolis was there, she just gave her state of the city address mm-hmm. last week and she wove it around this notion of the deep truth from the physicist from <laughs> you know from this program about the human condition um, and 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 i think what she talked about is true of you know um, all of our cities right it's it's this you know we have all these huge heartbreaking challenges and and that is a deep truth and another deep truth is all the incredible initiative and promise and goodness and you know this abundant energy that's out there to help heal and and help help create new resilient structures so that would be a recent example that I'm really living with.
1: Right. And I'm with you on the physics stuff. I mean, actually, one of the things that keeps popping up in this book is the way that the, the, the truths or the ideas, they don't change that much in some ways, that, that Brian Greene in your book sounds a lot to me like William James explaining radical empiricism mm. and, and that, <laughs> that the string theory stuff in your book sounds a lot like Plato, right? Uh, that yeah. notion, the notion of the, of a hologram projected from some primal source. Uh, it, it's it, these these ideas that people have been exploring for millennia. It, it's it, they're reworded and rephrased and enlarged upon and, and enriched and deepened. But you know, in yeah. some ways, we're asking a lot of the same questions as Plato.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's why. But, but what I love, you know, we have so we have all these new rich images and these new rich um, discoveries and um, and vocabulary to because these are such huge truths. And, uh, and I think we need all those vocabularies and all those images to, to start to you know, create an accumulative imagination that can approximate them.
1: Now, the book is divided up into uh, five themes, and we're going to try to touch on all of them uh, as time permits. But as we head uh, towards our first break, maybe we can talk a little bit about the first section, which is called Word uh, mm-hmm. and Words. And um, and it's also about stories. You have a lot of people talking about the notion of story. One of them uh, says that sometimes we need stories more than we need food almost. Um, yeah. and, and you do share some of your own stories, including one about your father, who had literally a, a nightmarish childhood, uh, the kind of childhood yeah. that pers- Produced nightmares in him. Um, can you tell a little bit of that story now, and explain how it fits into what you're trying to say in that, sec- in that section?
2: Yes. Uh, so one of the kind of breakthroughs of this of this writing was realizing that I'd, I've never really talked about that part of my story. Um, and but um, as I was pondering um, what it is I've learned about. Um, how our words become powerful and how how they how we touch each other with our stories you know um, and and how when I talk to people, as I always do at the beginning of my conversations about the spiritual background of their childhood i mean the, I do that because everybody has a story but i but I'm, I do it more because it's that part of our lives um, is a place that is searching and it 's full of questions, and I find interestingly that um, that a lot of the questions people end up following for the rest of their lives somehow in their professions or in their avocation, there's roots of that in your early life. And uh, and I, I, and I, and I um, realized very late in the writing of this that I'd never kind of really critically posed that question of myself. I'd, I'd posed the question of the religious background of my childhood, but the spiritual background of your childhood is more expansive than that. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, one of the very sad and puzzling features of my childhood was the fact that there were things in my house that we could not speak about and questions we could not ask. And 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 primary among that was, you know, my father had been – I knew that he had been adopted when he was three and that he had a little brother and an older sister and that he knew what his name was. Um, and that at some point his mother had tried to kidnap him back and that he had screaming nightmares in, in the middle of the night. But we weren't, I mean, so just those facts, you know, they're just stories and you suspect the worst. And I realized that there was something in me in, in my early life about, about the unaskable questions and how they form us and how important it would be to name them. And live with them that was still animating me, and you know this was just a, a kind of amazing revelation
1: I think for your dad and, and for all of us um, one of the problems with naming something like that is and I'm I'm going to steal this image from somebody else but uh, that it's a little bit like those um, acrobats or trapeze artists who go from ring to ring that in some ways to let go of that ring the ring that that has on it the the, the troubling childhood the childhood that was so horrible as to give him nightmares you've got to know where the next ring is you've got to be reaching out for the next ring and if he didn't have that um, yeah. It might have been very hard to, to let go of by speaking about all of that trauma.
2: Absolutely. And I we know so much now about, about the brain of a child that we didn't know then. I mean, I know things. I mean, you know, but what is it? As a child, what I was very aware of was a terror in my father and a sadness and that nothing could ever make those things better, right? And, and sometimes the ways they came out were – uh, you know he could he could be scary, but I think even behind that, I, I sense that terrified, sad child. We're talking. you couldn't get past that. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: well, I think a lot of it is that. Well, that is the journey, right? Can Can you get mm-hmm. past that that mm-hmm. formative thing, the thing that cracks the egg at the beginning? Um, yeah. We're talking to Krista Tippett about the book *Becoming Wise: An Inquiry into the Meaning, the Mystery, and Art of Living*. We'll take a quick break, uh, and we'll come back. God is in your
0: strangest pleasure. Some say God is into leather. God is into body piercing. In your nipple, lip, and nose ring. God is in your new tattoo. In your scars and birthmarks too. God is in your brand new nose in your control top penny holes. God is in the latest fad except for bungee jumping. That's dangerous and bad. God is in your cellular phone. God will not leave you alone. God is in the internet. Wondering why you're not there yet. God is in vogue and Spin and rolling stone.
1: We're back with Krista Tippett. I don't have to tell you who Krista Tippett is, but she is the host of On Being and, uh, more pertinently, uh, the author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Uh, this is divided up into five different segments. Uh, it's uh, Oh, word, flesh, I see what you did there, uh, and uh, love, faith, and hope. So um, we're still on word, though. and <laughs> I'm not running the clock very well. We're still on word, and, <laughs> and time is slipping away. But I think, first of all, you, talk, you do talk a lot, and not just in this segment. You do talk a lot to poets. I think people approaching uh-huh. this book might be surprised at how important poets are to you. Um, I'm not, actually, but, but maybe say what it is, what attracts you to them.
2: Oh, I, it's become such a such an important part of what we do and and i I will say I, uh, you, you quoted uh, you quoted somebody who talked about story being as important to mm-hmm. us as food and and I, I think I've also realized that you know poetry is a a way with language of, um, that is that we absolutely need. And what I experience in myself and others is we don't we don't necessarily know this. Um, I think poetry feels like kind of a luxury, maybe an elite thing in American culture. But when we put it on the air, and we you know started doing this in the early years, I see that people just soak it up, right? Just soak it up, like, like you know they, they were gasping for it and didn't realize it. It's and in a larger way, it's I, you know one of the there's a phrase of Elizabeth Alexander, the poet, in the in the book about you know words that shimmer. We crave words that shimmer and and a, and a more basic realization underneath that that i think is as true right now and at this moment in American life as it's ever been is we we, we are craving fresh language to approach each other uh, and we've 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 not just been careless with words in our public life um, we, we're we've become so destructive with words and we we don't pay attention to how powerful, these incredibly powerful tools that we all carry around with us as the ordinary kind of constant thing of, of the everyday. Um, and somehow, so so my, my conversations with poets um, become a way not just of talking about poetry, um, but of, of talking about how really... Transformative language can be and how I I think the world needs really us to, to name and know and wield the transformative power of language.
1: I will now inject myself in here a little bit more and say that it seems so odd because before starting your book, I mean right before starting your book, I was emailing back and forth with my own sort of pastor and spiritual mentor who has ALS right now. And, and mm. we we're communicating a lot by email. Uh, and um, and she was asking me about poetry, why poetry was important to me. And, and I mm. said something kind of similar, which is I said sometimes poems – I mean this sounds incredibly – Trite, But uh, that poems are like friends or that some words from poems, little phrases, you know, stick in my head. And they're things that I'll just kind of mutter to myself, you know, at at moments of need that because they do. You you have Marie Howe in your book saying that that poetry is something that can't be said. It expresses a (laughs) sentiment that's untranslatable. And so – you know, when Richard Wilbur in Love Calls Us to the Things of This World says, you know, let there be f- clean linen for the backs of thieves. You know, uh, I sort of know what he means and I sort of don't know what he means. But I know what I right. mean. I know what I mean when I say that to myself.
2: And David White is a poet I interviewed recently. And he said, I always ask poets, like, what's your definition? And He said, poetry is language against which, which we have no defense. Hmm. And so, I mean, that is a way of putting into relief – uh how wonderful that was. you know the the language that the 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 official language that we are dealing in now um we are all schooled in defense right and and we we wield words in a way that makes other people defend themselves um and we are losing out on on the the nourishing um healing power of words the tender uh, possibility of words, the 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 way words can cross the chasms between us, right? And so, mystery between uh, us. As know?
1: I was reading that section, I was thinking, in some wor- ways, in the ways that you're saying right now, words have gotten kind of a bad reputation. I mean, yeah. we we say just words or empty words or uh. words that obfuscate. Right? It's hard to get, yeah. keep your faith in words.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also, uh, so, so questions are a form of words also that have incredible power. And, you know, what I've learned as a, and this is one thing that was, that was, this was a great thing about writing the book was really thinking this through. And, you know, one thing I, I have learned is that, you know, questions, questions draw forth answers in their likeness that, you know, that answers mirror the, the questions that they, you know, that they rise or they fall to meet. So, you know, we deal in in kind of combative questions in this culture, and and, um, and a combat it's very hard to transcend a combative question with anything but a combative answer. It's hard to it's hard not to meet a simplistic question with a simplistic answer. But it's very hard to resist a generous question, um, and that's that is a power that we all have it in us. You know, every day, every minute, to use words in that way.
1: You know, when uh, noticing that that was the name of the first section of the book, I also was thinking a little bit about the beginning of John, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was yes. with God, and the Word was yes. God, uh, and you know, he was in the beginning with God. Uh, and obviously, we, we think we know what John is talking about, but wh- why do you think John expresses it that way? Why choose the word word to talk about yeah, the story? He's the logos.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's a very, it's, and I, you know, you're kind of taking me back to my seminary days, which were in Connecticut at Yale Divinity School. Um, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not in a linear way. You know, it's, it's a, that word is a, is a really seminal Greek concept and it's, 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 it translates as word. It's, it's more than that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that what you're Pointing at I mean you know the rabbis will say, you know words make worlds right, right? It's a, and it's it 's a similar thing um, it 's a similar insight and uh, about something that we treat so carelessly right that we just take for granted
1: i 've been yeah. thinking about that passage actually in a in a way uh, <laughs> in connection with physics and with uh, the philosophy of physics. Here's a philosopher, James Ladyman, who says, uh, looking at particle physics, looking at quantum physics, he says, in, I think in the end, it may be that the world isn't made of anything. Um, and, <laughs> and and I think yeah. about that in terms of word. I mean, and I, I don't think of it as nothingness. I think of it as not muchingness. Uh, and what if the world uh, is made of uh-huh. not muchingness? And what if the word, what if even in that passage, what he's really talking about is to get back to what you, you said earlier in this conversation, that really what we're doing is Is pattern recognition. So much of existence involves us as observers, us picking a choice, wave or particle. What is it? What is this that we're inhabiting Right. right now? Maybe that's a little bit what John means by word is that we're just constantly reading reality.
2: Right. Or also just to carry, I like that that analogy farther that, you know, we choose the, the questions that we ask and those questions create realities, right? I mean, the, 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 the kinds of answers and responses and dynamics that come back at us, we, we help create those by the way we come at them, by the way we draw them forth.
1: We're talking to Krista Tippett right now. The book is "Becoming Wise: An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living." Well, we better move on. We better—we can't stay with the word all day. We have to. Well, move you know,
2: we—you and I both deal professionally in words, so I yes. think we can be forgiven for dwelling on That's this. Right? We did a little bit.
1: Um, <laughs> yep. So, but we should move to flesh. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's a lot to say. Um, maybe I'll get you to tell a, another story. You—you you, you start by kind of exploring kind of the old-fashioned dualism that—that that, uh, in some ways the the world of the flesh is very different from the. Part, world of the spirit and you grew up in an, an environment where your grandfather, who was a preacher, um, saw, saw that in very stark terms, that, that, that mm-hmm. the temptations of the flesh really were um, a counter-narrative to living anything like a, a, a holy life. Um, and that, you know, in, in a way that I found very interesting, you sort of came back to that and thought, well, you know, I rejected that kind of dualism at one point. Now I sort of see maybe there's, maybe he had a point in certain ways. Can you say more about that?
2: Yeah, well, right. I mean, for my for my grandfather, the body was just basically an entry point of danger and temptation and you know, <laughs> anything bodily was a slippery slope <laughs> to sin. But but what I what I later realized is that uh as much as that was taken to an extreme um, that there was an intelligence about the body, and really a reverence for the power of the body behind all of his rules and his fear, you know, in in a world in which um, which addiction, which the twelve steps and AA meetings it didn't didn't exist, um, you know, addiction was a fatal illness. So in fact, yeah, drinking or you know playing cards; these were some of the things my grandfather was against. I mean, obviously, sex was top of the list and all the things that could cause sex, including dancing and wearing s- swimming, bathing suits, so swimming, right? But but also in an age before birth control, in an age when pregnancy out of wedlock would, would ruin lives and also, you know, women died in childbirth. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I became forgiving of my grandfather's rules and, and also understood how they kind of – they heated the power of the natural world and our bodies in a way that I think we, you know, later went overboard in pretending like we could be dismissive of, we could ignore, you know, we were in control. And that's not true either.
1: So one of the things that you, like many people of our generation, look for is sort of a way to harmonize those two things. And you've you found it uh, in yoga, uh, maybe more than... Uh, maybe more, I did. I practiced yoga very seriously in like three mm-hmm. or four t- classes a week for about five or six years. I didn't quite have the experience that, that you seem to be having. Maybe you, you should first tell us about Matthew Sanford because you had a very unusual portal to, to this.
2: I did, yeah. So So Matthew Sanford is probably one of the you know, if I had to list my favorite people I've ever reviewed, the, you know, somebody who's really um, who really changed me, and he's he's an important voice in the book, and he's he's a he's a very renowned yoga teacher. He was uh, paralyzed um, from the waist down when he was thirteen in a car accident, and he spent um, twenty or thirty years, you know, being told that he should forget his legs um, and build up his he get a bodybuilder arms, and um, and he and he eventually decided that he 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 wanted he that you know his legs might not he might never walk again but he he wanted to be whole and healed and being healed might not mean being fixed but his way of kind of inhabiting his entire body was through um a practice of yoga and he also now is a teacher for able-bodied people but also for people with disabilities, and he, he does adaptive yoga. And I, I think what Matthew is able to do because of his disability is actually really inhabit the kind of, you know, that subtle layer of yoga, which is about connecting your body kind of at an energetic level and not just about muscles and nerve endings. Um, and he has made the most remarkable... Observations, uh, you know, for example, that he's never known somebody to begin to inhabit their bodies, and 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 honestly, like in all its grace and all its flaws, without becoming more compassionate towards all of life. Um, He also um, says, you know, he's on a trajectory. He was kind of rushed through a trajectory. That, in fact, we all are on, right? I mean, we all don't have a catastrophic accidents at a certain stage, but our bodies are, you know, they're moving, there's an arc of decline. Um, and yet this American thing of fighting it and not, i mean, but but you know, and and I think, as I'm aging, I'm on that 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 trajectory, uh, you know, his point is there's there's always so much that's growing, even at the same time that other things are uh changing in a way that we might call decay and that you know being whole and i mean i would say this is a lesson from all of my life of conversation you know being whole and healed is about in fact t- knowing and internalizing also the things that have gone wrong for us uh, for us all the things the things that are our our strengths and our if our weaknesses and our wounds as well as our strengths as as part of our wholeness i mean that's that's how wise people um Change and how and how we you know wisdom is something that you recognize it's it's embodied right mm-hmm. you, you when you see a wise person the wise people you know it's not just it's not a possession that they have in their head it's not just the words that come out of their mouth it's something you palpably experience so so this physicality of spirituality this physicality of wisdom it's absolutely uh, basic to me and again not something I could ever have known a decade ago.
1: I thought one of the interesting things about him too, we just did a show about Wilhelm Reich about whom there are many good questions to ask, but Reich uh, believed that the body was kind of a recording angel, you know, just writing mm. down everything yeah. that happened to you. And and for uh, Matthew mm. Sanford, his body remembers things that he doesn't consciously remember about his accident.
2: Right. And Matthew made that observation a couple decades ago, you know, now I'm interviewing Psychiatrists and people people who are understanding um, people working in trauma now who are understanding, you know, at 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 the physical level as well as the psychological level, how you know trauma and joy, how memory does lodge in our bodies as much as it lodges in you know these, and in fact, I think, I think, I think, I think, you know. Fifty years from now, people will look back and even look at the way we talk about body, mind, spirit, emotions, these things as being separate. And not, you know, we are now learning in very concrete ways how unbelievably interactive all of this is. And, And so I think we are gaining the capacity as individuals and as a species to really have a new imagination about human wholeness. And I think that's very exciting.
1: All right, uh, time is trickling away. We've only done two out of five themes uh, from the book, Becoming Wise An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. We're going to take a break. If you haven't become wise already uh, just listening to this, I can almost guarantee you that in the final segment, you will become at least a little more wise uh, with Krista Tippett. Uh, we'll take a break, and we'll come back after this.
0: God is in glass on a frequent flyer pass. God is in the pilot light. Dancing through the night, God is in the radio. Wolfman Jack told me so. God is in the microwave. Unless you try to use something metal, then the microwave is the devil. Also, don't microwave a saran wrap because it forms molecular bonds with your food.
2: Today's show was produced by Colin and me, Kaiown Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at wnpr. Colin and the part of Bill Curry was played by Pope Francis. For show pages, articles, and photos, go to our website, wnprorg Colin. On tomorrow's show, baseballs and basketballs. And now, back to Colin.
1: We're back with Krista Tippett. Uh, her book is called Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery uh, and art of living. Uh, she also, of course, hosts On Being, which you hear on this very radio station. So uh, the, other, the last three segments of the book are love, faith, and hope. I don't know if we'll have time for all of them. That sounds kind of like a sad thing to say. We don't really have time for love, <laughs> faith, and hope. Too bad. Um, but uh, So in the chapter about love, even knowing who Krista Tippett is and what uh, she's like, I didn't necessarily expect to read in a chapter about love about Paul Ryan and a nun, about a black trooper and a white supremacist, about a geophysicist, a geophysicist and, a, and an astronomer who searches for planets capable of sustaining life. Clearly, Krista Tippett, I've been looking for love in all the wrong places, as the song says. <laughs> but may, maybe just pick one of those. And I, I don't know. The Paul Ryan and the nun is kind of an interesting one. She actually is a, a pretty big character in that segment.
2: Yeah, she's uh, Sister Simone Campbell, of, famous as the nuns on the bus. I do write about love as something that we do in private, and I think that uh, uh, what we know what we can know about love and how complex it is right how full how many facets of love there are in our lives, if we really stop to think about it, how many different forms love takes, how it is the most complicated thing we do, it is the most flawed thing we do, and it's also the most redeeming thing we do, and so I think we we do get to be searching about all the ways we've learned about love in all its forms i mean that's part of part of our knowledge base but what's important to me too is that i think love is the only aspiration big enough and rich enough to kind of meet the challenge that we have to be a, a human species in this century to you know to, to we're connected now but how do we how do we how do we recognize that on the human condition level so that it can really work um, so I want I want us to take love out of its private bubble in our imaginations and 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 really think about what it could be to for love to be a public virtue for it to be something muscular and robust and resilient and you know I think we have plenty of examples of that of how transformative that aspiration can be in the civil rights movement for example. You know, I talk to people about love as a as a private good but also a public good. And so Sister Simone Campbell is a nun. She's also a lawyer and a lobbyist. And she's been a nun since she was 18. And she has a serious Zen practice. So mm-hmm. that's all to say she's a thoroughly modern person. And she is kind of applying her virtue of love to this work she does on Capitol Hill as a lobbyist. And she's had this long relationship with Paul Ryan. Actually, when I interviewed her, it was before he became Speaker of the House – he was the head of the budget committee, I believe. And uh, and actually, the nuns on the bus were out there. Part of what they were doing out on the road was trying to talk about their concern about the least of these and how that should be reflected in our budget. So it was in part a protest against the Ryan budget. But what she models with him is, I think, what we, we are all longing to see in our public life, which is... They absolutely disagree on the issues, but they are in relationship and they across the years have changed each other. And uh, it's just so refreshing to hear her tell stories of how, you know, he ended up defending her, um, even though she's so much his political opposite, when she was attacked by another politician and to see something interactive going on as opposed to merely adversarial. <laughs> and I think that's so – if I say we have to figure out what love looks like in public, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is an example that we start exploring at a very pragmatic level.
1: The exchanges between the two of them, it reminded me a little bit of athletes at the end of their careers. You know, by the end of their careers, uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird realized that they had more in common than they had as adversaries, uh, that uh, they, they had uh. more lived reality. And they'd made their each other more meaningful. Same thing with John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg, you know, that these are, uh, you know, and there's some way in which in that exchange, which I found quite touching, actually, where Paul Ryan said, yes. said no, you can't talk about her like that. She's doing her job here. She's here, yeah. uh, you know. You're you can't talk. I, I, I was touched in a way that Paul Ryan has not previously touched me. You know, by the idea that he well, kind and of we saw don't tell,
2: that. we don't hear those stories. Those stories don't make the headlines. Like you know, like great clashes make the headlines.
1: I think also um, that one of the things we can segue a little bit into faith from here, because one of the things that faith. So I should just preface this by saying I'm six years ahead of you on the road of life right now. And for the last year, for the first time in my life, I've seriously gone to church, like every Sunday gone to church. Never did that before in my life. And one of the things that, you know, if you go to church, no matter what you think, no matter what the architecture of your faith is at any given moment, one thing you start learning is that you really do have to think about this all a little bit more expansively and a little (laughs) bit different, you know. And and, Mm -hmm. so this past Sunday, I I had— been angry at somebody elsewhere in my life, and I had been rehearsing all these very kind of angry sentences, like, if this ever happens again, or if you ever do this again. And I was sitting there in church listening to the guy giving the sermon, and I, like this voice completed the sentence in my head, if you ever do this again, I will forgive you. (laughs) You (laughs) That's good. Right. And that's a promise, that's a threat. You know, and and somehow or other you can't live alongside faith even without beginning to think, "Oh yeah, so I maybe I don't agree with Paul Ryan that much or maybe he doesn't agree with me that much, but there's there's so much more going on."
2: Yeah, and I'm not sure this is heading into faith It's kind of about love again, but I'm not interested in faith that's about abstractions. I mean, I think this maybe this is where the two things come together. I'm mm-hmm. And if we're not dealing in abstractions, we're always dealing with complexity and we're dealing with both ands. And uh, the thing about love, whether – in whatever form that might be, even if it's our imagination about divine love, we are in – the people closest to us, the people we love the most, people in our intimate circles of family and friends – there are people in those circles who we have so much in common with and we're so in sync and there's all this harmony and peace and peace and joy and love and that you know bright sense and, and there are people who we we choose to stay in relationship with where there're lots of points of difference and yet we make that staying in relationship that belonging to each other a priority and we we figure out how to do that and it you know it sometimes means that there are things we just don't talk about so it's never this and I think faith is the same thing, right? It's, it's never this simplistic, you know, easy glide. And when we, when we put these things up on some kind of weird pedestal or make, turn them into abstractions, we actually alienate ourselves from the real rich possibility of these things.
1: Um, Krista Tippett, uh, we're getting uh, very short on time, so I'm going to just say to people listening out uh, there right now: We'll talk a little bit more about faith. We don't have any time for hope. You want hope? Uh, you got to <laughs> read the, it's the book. It cost you twenty eight dollars, basically <laughs> hardcover. Uh, it's cheaper you know. <laughs> on
2: Amazon, I have to say. <laughs> All
1: right, now, we yeah. like to support our independent booksellers. Go, I know,
2: I do too. <laughs>
1: go play, go pay, bust out retail, bust out <laughs> okay. retail for Krista Tippett's book. But so you know, there's there's a story in the faith section that I. It's like I have to think about it about twenty more times before I decide what it means to me. But there's a story, and I'm I'm sorry I cannot quote the name, but it's a, a, a I think you describe him as a millennial who goes into a, relig- a religious community and starts to find faith while talking to a member of the religious community who's in the process of dying and having his faith shaken by the process. Yeah. Maybe you can sketch that out a little bit more. It's like a thing you have to think about a lot after you. That's read it.
2: Nathan Schneider, who is uh, a millennial who you know. Okay, so so. We, we are the first generation of humans who have been free to choose our own spiritual identities, really, like it's unparalleled. And so he's a, a person who, 20-something, who was raised by parents, you know, again, this whole new phenomenon in the future his history of humanity, who said, well, you know, we don't belong to any tradition, so go out and choose your own. And they introduced him to a lot. And then, of course, what he ends up doing is getting baptized when he's 17 in the Catholic Church. But the story he told was – and so he's really – an amazing person who's tracing the new forms spiritual searching and identity are taking in these new generations. There was a line in his in that he's written two wonderful books, and one was about Occupy Wall Street and part about this spiritual strain in that that you never heard about. And the other is kind of about this... It's like the search for God from the ancients to the internets. And there's a line in his book, which is a line of poetry of William Blake, and I can't remember it myself either, but it's about what you hang on to. I don't know. Anyway, it's about not being able to hang on to something. And uh, he put it in there and I just, it didn't quite make sense to me. So I asked him, like, what does this line of poetry mean to you? And then there was an incredible story behind it that it was, he'd gone on retreat at a monastery, which is another thing a lot of people are doing, religious and non-religious. And uh, this monk had become his mentor and part of his, kind of his companion and becoming Catholic. And he had seen this line of poetry on the wall of this monk and asked him about it, and and it turned out that this man was dying and had been dying a lot of the time Nathan knew him, and in the process of talking about this poetry, he he revealed that he didn't really have a faith anymore, as in this period where he was dying, any kind of certainty about it that he'd had most of his life, and in fact that he had passed on to Nathan, but. What oh, was so beautiful about Nathan's response to that is he said, you know, I, I could have felt betrayed, but there was some beauty and mystery and majesty in how this person was relinquishing something in themselves, but giving it to me. Mm-hmm. Again, this comes down to the mystery of us and how we are just these living, breathing contradictions and and paradox, and there's the greatest paradox of all that we're kind of made by what would break us as we go through our lives. Terrible things happen, and yet we are again and again offered this opportunity in the midst of what is most terrible and what is most unexpected to find meaning right there and create our lives. And uh, there's nothing neat and polar about this about wisdom, about mystery about who we are and what we're capable of. But I think those of us who are willing to take that on as an adventure and be curious about it and accompany, allow ourselves to be accompanied and accompany others, um, there's a lot of joy to be had as well as, you know, insight edification.
1: It, that really is a story that I'm going to come back to you a bunch of times and think about some mm-hmm. more and try to figure out what it means to me, but it, it, it's really, really interesting, almost in a kind of zen koan way.
2: Yeah, just to just to let just let it sit there and not be able to tie it up, right? It's right. Just...
1: Back to mystery. All right, so as we end here, we will give you one little smidgen of hope, uh, sort of, uh, and that is, <laughs> uh, we're talking to Kristen Tippett, the book's called Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. So you end, you end in an interesting way. You end with actually two terribly stories stories, one of them about a young woman who died in captivity uh, uh, with ISIS uh, or mm-hmm. by ISIS, and, and another about a, a group of people, uh, Muslim Americans, who, who died in a senseless shooting uh, here in the United States. Um, and, uh, well, and, you, and that's part of your chapter called Hope. So why did you <laughs> pick those things?
2: Well, I tell those stories because of the paradox that I learned about these people. I had the gift of knowing these people were in the world and remembering how many people at any given moment are in the world with their great goodness and beauty um i learn about them through the most terrible of headlines you know part of my part of my calling if you will is to like you know just just have us open up to all the reality that is not making the headlines and take that as seriously as we take the tra- what is tragic and corrupt and there's plenty of that to go around and it's real but just kind of pointing out that you know, even in these headlines and in these stories of uh, the worst, the worst happening, I am introduced. I am reminded how you know abundant our world is with these quiet, you know, hidden lives of beauty um, and service. And what I want to do as I take that in, kind of tucked inside the stories of of the terrible things that happen is ask myself, you know, how I can better attend to these lives, these t- hidden lives of beauty and goodness that are still with us um, and take that on as something to do in the ordinary daily spaces of my lives as well as looking for that hidden behind um, the better publicized images of despair.
1: Um, one great thing about re- interviewing a radio personality is they know how to land the plane. You know, you just... <laughs> You just landed the plane, Krista Tippett. So it's been so great talking to you. Don't be a stranger. You don't have to write a book. You can come on the show anytime you want. I would love to.
2: really. It's been a fabulous conversation. Thank you.
0: God is in your darkest sin. God is in. God is in. God is in. God is in.